Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, friends. I'm Alicia. Thanks so much for joining us today on a, another trip down marital misadventures. The winding road. Good Lord. Our theme song today is from one of Canada's favorite sons, Gordon Lightfoot. His song for Love and Me, That's What You Get, in our Two Trashy Tales this week. Stacy, who are you bringing us this week? I have a writer, children's book writer, but also adult book writer, uh, Roald Dahl, who was married to actress Patricia Neal until he was not. And they had a very, very difficult run of things for many decades, 30 years. Never going to be okay with how that story goes. Yeah. Who do you have? Ah, this week I'm covering the divorce of author Dan Brown. Mm, Da Vinci Code. His wife Blythe after 21 years of marriage. And this one doesn't even get dirty until after the divorce (laughs) is done. And yet, also it does. So, (laughs) Before we get started on our trash candy today... It's time to pull out our magic mirror and give some thanks and praise to our newest supporters on Patreon. We are so grateful for your support. Stacy. who do you see? Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Angela K, Jessica, Karen E, Allison D, and Denise S. New super supporter as well. Holy cats. Laura N, Lara N. I'm not sure which way you pronounce it, but we're really, really grateful you are here. Super. A tremendous thanks to our new Patreon folks, our existing Patreon folks, and you for coming back to listen for another week, because that's what you get for loving us. Stacy, what do we need to do? I think we need to go, go, go. So, Stacey, you're bringing us a Trash Panda often requested divorce of a wonderful writer, terrible husband? That's, yeah. Yeah. Alicia, I don't want you to feel challenged by my story today. Buckle up. But I think it's <laughs> I think it's important that we all check our priors on that whole people in the past were so much more moral than people today are thing. Because the word of the day, kids, is infidelity. We've got the long, twisty story of the beloved British children's book author Roald Dahl and his first wife, American actress and genuine mid-century superstar Patricia Neal. Their relationship puzzled those close to them, but also assured both a stable place, sort of, to experience the cascading waves of grief and tragedy that would ultimately undo them. Oh, no. Oh, and there are super significant affairs as well. So... Yikes on bikes. Let's yeah. do this. Yeah. Roald Dahl was born September 13th, 1916 in Cardiff, Wales. Virgo man. I'll trust you on that. He grew up speaking Norwegian at home. Interesting. His father was either a wealthy shipbuilder or a wealthy shipper, which although at the time, maybe those were kind of the same thing. In any case, something to do with money and boats. With money and boats, boats, boats. Okay. So dad, uh, Harold, had emigrated to the UK back in the 1880s during the time of dad's first marriage. Uh, Dad's first wife passed away in 1907, and Harold Dahl married Roald's mother, fellow Norwegian Sophie, in 1911, and soon started his second family, daughters, Astri, woo, I'm going to mispronounce this, Alfild, and Elsa, and then, of course, son, Roald. That family was well underway. Okay. So, tragically, Roald's sister 
Astri died of appendicitis when she was just seven in 1920. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's terrible. And this loss broke his father. Mm. Harold Dahl died weeks later, (gasps) Mm -hmm. suffering pneumonia and heartbreak and leaving his young wife, Sophie, pregnant with their youngest. The only good here is that his father had amassed a very comfortable fortune equivalent to like six or seven million pounds in today's money. Oh, that's helpful. Very helpful. So Sophie carried out Harold's wish that their children grow up attending English schools, which he felt were superior to Norwegian ones. Sorry, Norwegians. Not our opinion. Oh, yeah. Not not my opinion. Hey, I'm a product of the American school system. Don't don't come at me about excellence. Trashy Divorces has no opinion on the school systems throughout the world. Uh, Especially back in the 1920s, you know. Okay. On the superiority of English schools, I'm going to go with a yes and no situation here because Roald ended up experiencing a classic English boys' school experience, which left him psychologically scarred and furious for the rest of his life at the cruelty, violence, and humiliation that he and his classmates were routinely subjected to by both staff and older boys. These themes of overbearing and malicious adults being outsmarted by innocent but clever kids would become mainstays in his later work and part of why he's so beloved. Oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. He's writing about what he hates. Matilda. And getting revenge. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, so good. I mean, he does write really good books. For sure. For sure. Anyway, Roald was also incredibly tall, topping out at six foot six. That is 1.98 meters for those who celebrate. So he was also quite athletic. He played cricket, football, which I think means soccer, golf, and squash. I think he was captain of the squash team. I don't quite know how squash works. While also falling in love with literature and photography. One notable thing about his high school experience is that the Cadbury Company, which I think had a factory nearby, would occasionally send along new chocolate products to be tested out by the student body. And this would later spark the idea for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. After graduating, he went and hiked around Canada for a bit. and Like you do. Like you do. And then worked for the Shell Petroleum Company and spent several years in Africa, first in Kenya and then in what is now Tanzania. For whatever the hell reason, biographical oddity, when Roald Dahl was 21, he had all of his teeth pulled preemptively. I'm sorry, what? He just decided that that the mouth bones were more trouble than they were worth and had them all pulled. And then he encouraged everyone he knew to have all of their teeth pulled. I don't know if he had dentures or what for the rest of his life, but... Teeth, too much trouble. Have to brush them too? No, get these out of here. He is not a fan of dentistry. Yeah. (laughs) With World War II looming in 1939, he enlisted in the Royal Air Force. After about a year of training, he was assigned to a squadron based in North Africa. But just a month into his service, he was given the wrong coordinates to fly to. For obvious reasons, he could not find the airstrip that he was supposed to land at, and running low on fuel with daylight fading, he attempted an emergency landing in the desert. It went poorly. And he was badly injured and for a time left blind. Oh my god. Apparently, like, the plane hit a boulder on impact... And then caught fire. He was, again, bad. I mean, his he had back pain for the rest of his life from this incident. 
but he he crawled away. But then the machine guns on the front of oh, the no. plane heated up as the fire was happening, and so the plane was shooting at him a little bit. Like, it's amazing he survived. Very frightening. Very frightening. Um, his sight did return, and in April 1941, he began flying combat missions over Greece and North Africa. By June, he was experiencing headaches, blackouts, stomach problems, and they shipped him on home to Buckinghamshire. That's probably how that's pronounced, where his mother was living. He was still in the RAF, though, and he still wanted to fly. But while he was trying to build his health back, he happened to meet Major Harold Balfour, Britain's Undersecretary of State for Air, who recognized that young Roald might have even more valuable talents to contribute to the war effort than dogfighting over Greece. Balfour had been a World War I flying ace. So let's meet Roald Dahl, British spy in Washington. Really? Seriously, everything old is new again. So his job in D.C.'s British embassy was to influence American public opinion, pushing back against the nation's isolationism and promoting Britain's cause in the war, in speeches and in writing. And His colleagues in this endeavor included novelist C.S. Forrester, James Bond creator Ian Fleming, and future marketing legend David Ogilvy. You are kidding. would go on to found Ogilvy and Mather. This is incredible. He was directly passing DC goings-on to Winston Churchill. Well, match. And basically helping Churchill like, understand what FDR was thinking and doing at any given time. And I'll explain how that came together in just a second. But when the war ended in 1945... Roald had attained the rank of squadron leader in the RAF, and because he was still plagued with pain from his 1940 crash, he was demobilized in 1946, albeit with an official tally of five aerial victories. It's believed he probably had more, but that was the official count that all sides could confirm. So this qualifies him as a flying ace of World War II. It was a dark and stormy night. That's fantastic. He was already published by this point. In 1942, while working in Washington, the Saturday Evening Post had paid him $1,000, which is for a piece about his experiences as a pilot in the war. And in 1943, his first children's book, The Gremlins, was published. Now, he had a good grasp of how to market himself. He sent a copy to Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, That's smart. Super smart man. Who read it to her grandchildren and began Perfect. inviting him to come and join the Roosevelts at the White House or, you know, wherever and hang out. This is how he's like shuttling information back to Churchill about what FDR. Because he's hanging out with the cabinet. He's hanging out with. That is some super secret spy shit. For sure. That's amazing. And he was, he's. Like he clarified later in his life, like I was not spying on the Americans. I was facilitating friendship between us, which is something a spy would totally say. Right. You're a writer as well. It was a clever line, my friend. Clever line. (laughs) Uh, Walt Disney bought the rights to the Gremlins. I mean, seriously, 1940s anyway. uh, No movie was ever made of it, but that's a big first outing right there. While Roald is best known for his children's books, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, the BFG, Fantastic Mr. Fox, the aforementioned Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, these are just some of his output. He was also a well-respected writer of sort of dark adult short stories, usually published in magazines. He won three Edgar Awards from the Mystery Writers of America for his adult fiction. 
His legacy is not without controversy, of course. Uh, He made a number of anti-Semitic public statements over the years, and depictions in his work have been described by many as misogynistic and racially stereotyped. So, yeah. This is where we part with old Roald, though, and head across the tracks at the Trashy Divorces Depot to meet his future ex-wife, a woman with whom he would share a great many tragedies. Patsy Louise Neal, Patsy Lou, was born January 20th, 1926 in Whitley County, Kentucky, and grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. After high school, she headed to Northwestern to study drama. Her parents insisted that, okay, you can be an actress, but you have to go to college first. Well, two years in, she was like, eh, I'm just going to go be an actress. So she headed off to New York City with dreams of Broadway stardom. Yeah, you don't really tell an Aquarius what to do. They're going to do what they want to do. We tell a lot of, you know, and then she waited tables and auditioned for bit parts for years stories on the show. But by golly, Pat picked up her first Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play in 1947 at the age of 21. Wow. For her role in Lillian Hellman's Another Part of the Forest the year before. She had already appeared on the cover of Life magazine by the time she was 21. Breakout star. Hollywood came calling. In her memoir, As I Am, an autobiography, Pat writes that the studios were almost merciless in their pursuit of her. Quote, one night Mr. Selznick took me to the Stork Club. Or maybe it was 21. They all seemed very much alike to me. 1971, there was a Guardian profile on her. And she, at this time, has uh, experienced three strokes and recovered very well from them. Um, But... They write, Patricia Neal is taller than you'd expect, her voice resonant with the timbre of Kentucky and Tennessee origins. Her eyes are a vulnerable green-brown, but she laughs often with a barmaid vitality (laughs) that never suggests the way life has mauled her. What a lovely description. I thought so, too. All right, so she makes her film debut. You know how Ronald Reagan was churning out crap movies? Yeah. She was in a couple of those. Fantastic. with, With Ronald Reagan. Perfect. So in 1949, breakout role in The Fountainhead, based on the Ayn Rand book. Oh, she played Dominique against Gary Cooper's Howard Mm -hmm. Rourke. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, it's all coming back to me. Yes, and this spawned what would become initially a discreet affair, which would stop being discreet. uh, And ultimately, Gary's wife would learn about and confront him about... The relationship would last through the end of 1951, so maybe two-ish years, 1949 to 51, during which time Gary and his wife would separate when she finally confronted him, and he refused to end the affair. Only to, Pat would later say in her memoir, um, physically strike her after she went on a date with Kirk Douglas. Oh, no. Cool guy. And then when she discovered she was pregnant with Gary's baby in 1950... He arranged for her to have an illegal abortion. She told People Magazine in 1988, quote, I've wept and wept over that. That abortion is my greatest regret, but I wasn't as gutsy as Ingrid Bergman. So Ingrid Bergman scandalously had an out-of-wedlock birth the same year with exactly. uh, director Roberto Rossellini. Which we covered mm-hmm. at, a- ages at some ago. point. <laughs> yeah. So Pat continued that I, this little Southern girl, should have had the guts to do that. Never, never. Wow. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Gary was separated from but not divorcing his wife, and he would not commit to Pat. 
She finally ended things in December 1951 and promptly experienced what she described as a nervous breakdown. Quote, oh, how I loved him. I was in another world when it ended. I couldn't talk. I lost 25 pounds. I felt life was over, but I didn't have the courage to kill myself. Mm. Back in that 1971 piece in The Guardian, she said, I looked at pictures of about that time and gee, I was so scrawny. A smashed love affair is better than a diet, I tell you. You're not kidding. I mean, there's some truth in that. There, There is some truth in that. She retreated back to New York to tend her broken heart, put herself back together, hang out with the family doctor who helped, and then appeared on Broadway in 1952 in, again, Lillian Hellman's The Children's Hour. Oh, wow. This brings us back to the Trashy Divorces Depot because it was at a dinner party at Lillian's house during this production that she met the six-foot, six-inch-tall Welsh writer Roald Dahl and was immediately offended by his arrogance and demeanor. <laughs> like, it's going to be a great start. But I guess there was some effort at pursuit and both. Pat being 26 and Roald being 36 by now, they felt ready to marry. You look like a choice. I could make. (laughs) But this guy? Like, here's a memory of Pat's from their first date. Quote, I remember his taking a sip of wine and looking at me for a long moment through the candlelight. I would rather be dead than fat, he said. Oh. (laughs) Nailing it. Nailing it, bro. Eventually, she did come around on the subject of him. I'm not sure why. And besides, she would later write, quote, what was I holding out for? A great love? That would never come again. Aw. Yeah, oh, I'm right. So, sad. so tragic. She was so in love with Gary Cooper. And he wouldn't leave his wife for her. Rebound. Yeah, rebound. It's not as we shall see. It's not great. Wow. Okay, so that's super tragic. They <laughs> married in nineteen fifty three and settled in New York, where they started having kids. There was Olivia, born in 1955, Tessa in 57, and Theo in 1960. And this is where the story turns pretty pretty hard into just terrible. When he was four months old, Theo, being pushed in a carriage or pram, take your pick, by his nanny, was struck by a taxi. Oh, my God. Uh, that was racing a light. Like, it crashed, it it apparently threw the carriage 40 feet. It smashed into a bus. Theo suffered significant head injuries. He was not expected to survive, but against all odds, he did. He, like, big swelling in the, like, fluid in the brain. Very bad. Oh, my. Roald, for his part, participated in the invention of a specialized shunt. This is known as the Wade Dahl Till Valve. This was used to alleviate his son's hydrocephalus, fluid on the brain, Mm -hmm. as well as about 3,000 other kids. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Five months after Theo's accident, Gary Cooper died. Mm. Yeah, there there was a huge age difference between them. um, Yeah, because Gary Cooper died at 60 years old? Something, yeah, he Mm -hmm. died of cancer. And anyway, so Pat wrote, quote, A tempting voice whispered to me, You will never again have to look twice when you see a tall, lanky man with a certain stance. You'll know he can never again be there. Oh, it's just brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. Oh, honey. The hits were going to keep on coming, however. In November 1962, their oldest, Olivia, died of complications from measles at the age of seven. This is terrible. 
And if you're wondering, the measles vaccine became available in 1963, mm. which I have to think compounded the family's grief. In particular, Rold sought spiritual counseling from the former Archbishop of Canterbury and found the experience wholly unhelpful, which was kind of his breaking point with Christianity and established religion in general. He'd been really wounded by his school experience. Well, and then I would think the war experience and then the hits of marriage and life keep on coming. Right. Meanwhile, Pat starred in 1963's HUD with Paul Newman and won the Academy Award for Best Actress for it. So just a lot going on here, like ups and downs. And Roald and Pat had another baby, Ophelia, in 1964. And in February 1965, while pregnant with their final child, Lucy, three brain aneurysms suddenly burst inside Pat's head. Oh. She was 39 years old and was in a coma for three weeks and lost the ability to speak and walk. And basically, I mean, this was terrible. When she gave birth to a healthy baby girl, thank God, that August via C-section, Roald ordered the doctor to tie Pat's tubes and the doctor did it. She was unconscious. She wrote, he did so because of my condition, assuming I would not have argued the point. He was right. I wouldn't have. Not then. Only years later did I feel the outrage. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You're not, dude. Oh, no. The recovery from the stroke was oof. So this is from a Chicago Tribune review of her autobiography in 1988, written by Joyce Slater. The right side of her body was paralyzed, her vision was impaired, and she could neither speak nor think clearly. Quote, after a stroke, she says, anger grows with awareness of what you have lost. Mm. You are a prisoner in a private hell. Everybody is just pushing you around. They say things, shout things, look at you with expectation, and you don't know what they want. The piece continues, Pat Neal's miraculous recovery and her husband's role in it inspired several books and a TV movie. Though she generously credits him with saving her life, to an outsider, his treatment sounds more like that of a drill sergeant than a caring spouse. I mean, this is like where the for better or worse sickness and in health really comes into play. Yeah. Slater continues, Dahl refused Pat the simplest things like sugar for her tea if she could not think of their proper names. When she despaired of recovering and asked him how many pills it would take to kill herself, she says he replied with a laugh, quote, we've got knives that'll do you up fine. And there are my razor blades or else you can lock yourself in the car and turn on the engine. You're sure the book title isn't BFJ, Big Fat Jerk? BFD, Big Fat Divorce? Uh, uh, on the way to the courthouse right now. She told People Magazine that Roald seemed to enjoy the situation, where Pat was now powerless and the children were frightened of their radically altered mother. Mm. Quote, he began to run things and he liked it. I remember Tessa saying, Daddy, 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 all the time, and I'd silently scream, Talk to me. I didn't make this happen to me. It wasn't my fault. I felt terrible anger. So Pat would, of course, substantially recover. And she would go on to star in The Subject Was Roses in 1968, which netted her another Oscar nomination and also starred in the 1971 TV movie The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, which spawned a little television series we like to call The Waltons. Also it won her a Golden Globe. For all the apparent cruelty of Roald and their their teams, there were volunteers and doctors and nurses and like it was it was a group effort. 
So for all the apparent cruelty of Rold's methods in helping Pat recover from the strokes, their widely documented process had a big impact on stroke treatment around the world. So non-doctor Roald Dahl played a significant role in two medical advances in his lifetime, although one can ask about the fairness of the life circumstances that required that of him. So 1972, Pat's pretty well recovered. Okay, good news, good news. working again. She is shooting a commercial for Maxim Coffee and befriends a young set designer named Felicity Crossland. Lissy, as she was known, is known. She's still alive. Lissy was a recently divorced mother of three who happened to hail from the same North Cardiff district that Roald himself did. Oh, no. She was born December 12, 1938, but the 21-year age difference between herself and her new friend's husband did not stop an affair from commencing between the two. It never does. So Pat became aware of this a couple of years later. I think they had sort of rolled and Lissy had kind of decided like, eh, we'll just keep it quiet. No bigs. Anyway, Pat became aware of it after a couple of years. Rold promised to end things with Lissy. But like five years later, like 7980, their daughter Ophelia finally came clean to her mother that Rold had not stopped seeing Lissy and that their romance was going strong and that Rold and Lissy were deeply in love. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pat says, I wanted to kill Rold. It was the most horrible, horrendous thing. I was so revolting to be around. I ranted and raved and called him that bastard to the kids and everyone else. My poor children. They went through hell. I'm sorry about it, but I probably would do it again. Oh, I'd be mad. Yeah. Yeah. In 2008, around some event about Rold's life, the Guardian profiled Lissy, and this passage stood out to me. When Pat found out, she was devastated, particularly as her own children had known about their father's relationship Mm. and tacitly condoned it. Ophelia Dahl, who was 14 when her parents divorced in 1983, said in later years that, quote, all of us realized he had found the love of his life with Lissy, and there's always a sense of relief when that happens. This is amazing. I mean, the kids see that their parents... Aren't suited for each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Lissy in the same piece would say, it's a very difficult thing. It's tough on everybody. They did become quite close, Pat and Lissy, in later years. Pat moved back to New York. It's like her move. The family had been in England since the mid-60s, and soon after their divorce became final in 1983, Roald and Lissy married. He spent the next seven years with her before passing away from a form of leukemia in November of 1990. According to New York Magazine, quote, in a hospital surrounded by family, Dahl reassured everyone sweetly that he wasn't afraid of death. It's just that I will miss you all so much, he said. The perfect final words. Then, as everyone sat quietly around him, a nurse pricked him with a needle, and he said his actual last words, Ow! Fuck! (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Lissy, in that Guardian piece, would say, quote, he used to get grumpy when he was finishing a book, and I remember saying, but you should be so pleased, you're reaching the end. And he used to say, you don't understand, it's the fear of never writing another one. Yeah. Deep writer fear, relatable. For Pat, returned to New York to recover from heartbreak for a second time in her life, 
something genuinely unexpected happened. Uh, Gary Cooper's daughter, Maria, yeah, who had first made contact with her while she recovered from the strokes, got in touch. And gradually, Pat, who by this point had been Methodist and Baptist and Anglican over the years, began moving toward Maria's Catholic faith. This was also bolstered by an old friend from Hollywood, the actress Dolores Hart, who had gone on to become a nun and ultimately the abbess of the Abbey of Regina Laudis in Bethlehem, Connecticut, where Pat would often visit over the ensuing decades. Pat lived to August of 2010, having formally converted to Catholicism four months before passing from lung cancer and was buried at her friend's abbey. Alicia, I don't quite know how to wrap this Pat's story feels deeply tragic, and that New York Magazine piece notes, quote, It's hard to know whether to root for Dahl, rolled, or for whatever hell demon seemed so determined to bring him down. And mm. that also feels true. This is a story so informed by loss, though. Like, Pat really wanted to marry Gary Cooper, who ended up reconciling with his wife. And Rold's childhood was just indelibly marked by losses, that were then echoed throughout his adulthood. I'm going to give this one a thousand trash cans. Okay. For the amount Rold was paid for his 1942 Saturday Evening Post story. And I'm going to let one of Pat's friends who came to visit in the aftermath of her strokes in 1965 have the final word. The friend said to Pat, there in bed, unable to really move, well, Tennessee hillbillies don't conk that easy, do they? <laughs> and they don't. They do it not. turns out. So that is more or less the inappropriate pairing of writer Roald Dahl and actress Patricia Neal. Well done, Stacey. Thanks for that. Don't marry on the rebound, friends. No, it's always... A, <laughs> it's not typically a good idea. It's not typically a good idea. You know what is a great idea? What's that? Taking a break to hear from our sponsors... Stay tuned, we'll be back on the flip with a little bit of a more current writer with some trash cans in his future, too. Covered in weird symbols, though. <laughs> See you in a minute. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? or a thriller you could only read during the day. The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. Alicia, do I understand this right? You have the Da Vinci Code of Trashy Divorces? Something like that. This week, I'm bringing you the Trashy Divorce of Blythe and Dan Brown. Dan Brown, author of all the books. <laughs> Everybody thought his reputation was so good. Here's the author, cozied up to his wife, Blythe. They stay out of the limelight, happily married, doing their thing. He's typing away at the words. She's doing painting and horses. But after 21 years of marriage, the couple divorce in 2019. Amicably. Or... 
at least what's thought at the time. Hmm. The real drama begins the following year, in 2020, a year after the divorce, where new information comes to light for wife Blythe, Hmm. and that is where it gets trashy. I can't wait. Let's get into it. Daniel Gerhard Brown, born June 22nd, 1964, in Exeter, New Hampshire. Right near Phillips Exeter Academy, where his father is a teacher of mathematics, or maths, as our UK friends say. Indeed. Dad's there for like three decades. Dan's mom is a piano teacher and church organist, and Dan has two younger siblings. Pretty like normie stuff. As a kid, Dan loves piano. All the classic composers, Bach, Tchaikovsky, and begins composing his own music hmm. at the tender age of five. I bet it was great. It's great. All I can think about when I researched this story was Ross and the keyboard. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of that happening here, but that's only my own imagination, sure. not germane to the story. <laughs> Dan, at the age of five, also begins writing stories. So he's equally drawn to writing and music. And his parents encourage his gifts. Sure. He has a father who's an academic, Mm -hmm. a mother who's a music teacher. Huzzah! Yeah. Best of both worlds. Hannah Montana-like. Dana's going to attend Phillips Exeter Academy in high school and then go on to attend Amherst College, Mm -hmm. where he receives a double major in English and Spanish. What to do after graduation with my dual degree? I can write in two languages. Good Lord. Well, Dan has been working on this project about animals, and he has like 500 cassettes of all of his synthesized keyboard music. Oh, this really is Ross. 100%. God, okay. (laughs) And he's... These are friends jokes, if you're not clear on... No, he's really been working on his music. It's my music, man. Sure. And he'll do a little time in New Hampshire, like not in prison or anything, but like (laughs) he'll hang out there... But then he's going to be like, what? I love music the most of he anything. He goes to rock and roll jail in New Hampshire it's for a while. It's my rhythm. Why not head out to Los Angeles to Why become not? the most famous composer musician in the world? Uh, dreams really do come true. Well, one of those things happen. Dan does get to Los Angeles. <laughs> like a lot of airlines <laughs> will make that happen for you. Dan is going to compose You're and not songwrite. special, Dan gonna work on his music but to pay the bills he gets a teaching gig at the beverly hills preparatory academy well fine his music is gonna get him to the national academy for songwriters which is kind of a big deal and here he will meet the director of artistic development her name is blythe newland Hmm. blythe is a little older a little wiser not a whole lot is known about Blythe. She's born in Palmdale, California in 1952. She's 12 years older. So I think of kind of smart lady in a real short skirt. Blythe, again, not a lot about her pre-marriage. Her background's pretty quiet, but she's described as a painter and art historian. Although research will not find an alma mater for her, painting could just be her hobby, but people say they've never actually seen her art. But at least for the purposes of this story, she is the director of artistic development at the songwriters thing. Okay. All right, so here comes College Dan. 
Hippie College Dan dual major with his 500 cassettes of animal music. And here's Blythe, smart lady in a real short skirt. They meet in 1991. I need to let you know that Blythe is the one who makes Dan Brown happen. She believes in him and his career, and she's going to get all these famous names to help him with his CD release, declares him the next big thing, takes out full-page trade press ads in Los Angeles, announcing that Dan Brown, wait on it, is the next Billy Joel, Paul Simon, or Prince. Wow, that's an eclectic mix there. Well, unfortunately for Dan, this is like the early 90s and rap is about to break through. So he sells like three albums of his debut. Terrible time for Dan. But hey, Dan making inroads into the National Academy of Songwriters and Blythe is managing his career and he's also sleeping with her. So that kind of influence is a big help. Lover manager, but alas, stardom does not come to Dan. Not yet. Dan and Blythe are going to head back to the East Coast in 1993. They head back to Exeter, New Hampshire, where he will take a job teaching at Phillips Exeter Academy, like his pa. (laughs) Blythe will work as a dental hygienist. Are you kidding me? They left Los Angeles and the (laughs) National Academy or whatever and... No, but wait, Dan's working on his music too. Okay. So these two in love, they're making it together. And Blythe will get credit on Dan's, God bless him, second CD for, quote, being my tireless co-writer, co-producer, second engineer, significant other, and therapist, unquote. Blythe, can we have a word? No, run away now, baby. Run away now. But she does not run away because she devotes her life to Ross. For fuck's sake. Okay, wait on it. No, I'm getting it. I, so I have the vibe Dan now. will continue to write while he's teaching. The two get married in 1997 at Pea Porridge Pond near his parents' home. Sorry, is that P-E-E Porridge Pond? P-E-A. Pea Porridge. Oh, Pea Porridge P- Pond. Pea Porridge. Okay. Yeah. Like, okay. Glad we sorted that. Uh, Pea Porridge <laughs> Pond is located in New Hampshire, near the border of Maine, and it's quite lovely, and the couple settles down, and he's teaching and writing, and she's dental hygienisting, and Blythe is encouraging all of her husband's talents, and he's so appreciative. In 1998, Dan is going to publish his first book, Digital Fortress. This features a smart woman in a real short skirt named Susan. Dana Scully is my guess here? His wife, Blythe! Angels and Demons comes next, the first to feature Harvard symbologist Robert Langdon. Sure. And then there's Deception Point, which has another smart woman in a real short skirt. This time her name's Rachel. And I say that all three books initially sell poorly, but I think this is a negotiable number. They all sell about 10,000 copies, which if a book I wrote sold 10,000 copies, I would feel pretty good about it. But I couldn't quit my day job. Sure. I would not feel bad. 10,000 is... Respectable. I, I have friends who've self-published, and I don't believe they've... Anyway, continue. So those three books, with Blythe being his guiding light. His muse. His muse sell poorly, but those three books are nothing like the success of the Da Vinci Code that comes out in 2003. 
Now, at this point, Dan wants to give it up because his dream is not working out. But Da Vinci Code comes out and holy Boom. cats. It was a sensation, yeah. 85 million copies. Whoa. Which will generate... So more than 10,000. More than 10,000, which will generate interest in his previous books. Mm-hmm. So bump his all told numbers of books sold over 250 million copies. Wow. The gross on that, 2.5 billion just from literary works. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because the Da Vinci Code has a book and then a film starring Tom Hanks, but Tom Hanks will star in follow-up films, Angels and Demons and Inferno, but just for the Da Vinci Code, that film grosses $760 million. Yeah, I remember it being an enormous cultural force in real time, yeah. So The Da Vinci Code, a little bit of a novel that contends that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had children, and it causes uproar with everyone all over. And you know what? A lot of other authors think that book sucks. I have a few quotes here. Salman Rushdie said the Da Vinci Code was a novel so bad it gives bad novels a bad name. (laughs) Stephen King said that Dan Brown's works were the mental equivalent of a macaroni cheese ready meal. But who doesn't love a macaroni and cheese ready meal? Come on. I'm just saying, if that's your favorite book, fantastic. Uh, Dan Brown definitely has an audience. Oh, yeah. It hit at the right time. Da Vinci Code is an enormous success. I will say I've found it to be a really fun page turner. I had read these reviews and so I knew I was, you know, I was looking at a fun page turner, which it was. It's a summer beach book. Okay. But once the Da Vinci Code takes off, Dan and Blythe, now in their whatever seventh year of marriage, they kind of go into this reclusive idol Uh, She doesn't give any interviews. He goes back into hibernation to, I assume, write and work on his tunes. There's a 2004 newspaper profile about this time that describes Dan as unexciting, adding that the life and times of Dan Brown imply that not every tale has a sting. I wait on it. Okay. Because Angels and Demons is dedicated for Blythe. And so is the Da Vinci Code. It's dedication for Blythe again, more than ever. Dan says about his wife, she is an enormous Da Vinci fanatic and really got me extremely interested in this topic. I became a believer the more time we spent in Europe in these museums. Plus, she's a great editor. Blythe, supportive wife, alleges that, yeah, I helped with the key themes and the ideas, and I, quote, served as the lead researcher, first-line editor, and critic, and was Dan's literary partner in the fullest sense. This sounds like something you would say in a divorce filing. This is before the divorce filing. (laughs) Okay. But these books are both described by each of them as their kids. These are, this is the work that we are doing. We do not have a family because we are making this creative work together. The home they've lived in, which has been this old mill house, now that they got a little cash, they're going to move to Coastal Rye. 
going to build a larger home, a little bit more secluded and stuff, but the Da Vinci Code, all the sacred feminine. Dan, you learned it by watching your wife. Like Dan Brown writes of mysteries, but there's always a sexy goddess heroine in each book who's brave and sexy and smart and assertive. And I wonder where he picked up that archetype. Oh, maybe in your kitchen, Dan. All right, this gets us to March 2006, and whoa, there's a court case brought against Dan Brown from other authors saying he has stolen their ideas regarding the Da Vinci Code, and everyone's headed to court. Dan, at this point, credits his wife for everything. All the press reveals that Blythe is Dan's superpower. It's his real-life Galatea, his real-life Wonder Woman, Dan will hold his wife up as the other half of his creative genius. She's the research assistant and idea generator, and she's the real brains behind my operation, utterly indispensable to me. I've never done a thing without her. She and I are a team. She's my silent partner, my lodestar, the reason for my success. He will praise her as without a doubt the most astonishingly talented woman I've ever known. Even in 2017, Dan says, I probably wouldn't have written The Da Vinci Code without her. They win the lawsuit. They drift back into a comfortable existence. And now with Da Vinci Code money, Blythe is going to get into horses and dressage. Hmm. Stacy, I can assure you. Is there a pony boy? Not on her part. Oh. Dan is still riding and doing his music, I suppose. And it sticks this way for another comfortable set of years, but it is in 2014 that Blythe, wife of almost two decades, begins to notice some differences in her husband of almost, right, 20 years. Maybe some of these signs are recognizable to listeners. Blythe said he started to act distant, dressed differently, and instigated arguments over inconsequential matters for no apparent reason. This goes on for about four years. Oh, God. And in 2018, old Dan is said to have told Blythe that he wanted a separation as they had, quote-unquote, grown apart, but could, here's your consolation prize, remain best friends. I mean, thanks? Blythe is not into it. She reluctantly moves out of their home on the Oceanside Village of Rye Beach, New Hampshire. I have had my fingers in strangers' mouths for years for you. (laughs) I've also come up with every one of your plot twists Mm -hmm. for your book, dude. Blythe moves out in August of 2018. Now, Blythe will say that Dan said that he wanted to avoid, quote, a protracted public divorce proceeding and quote-unquote persuaded her at the time of their divorce that she had quote-unquote full knowledge of their vast wealth. Dan says he laid it out all on the table. Here's what we have and that's cool and let's split it down the middle, right? Because there's no prenup and the two go on to divorce proceedings, which they do split down the middle based on what those financial statements said in 2019 that they agreed and signed off on as factual documents. 
that he 100% supplied and she's 0% interrogated. Is that right? No, she looked at it. That's what she knew about at the time. It looks right. Right. But Fantastic. She didn't hire like a forensic accounting firm to like go after him because she thought it was going to be friendly, right? It's it's an amicable divorce mm. and you told me what we have and let's split mm. it down the middle, which splitting it down the middle like $150 million, Yeah. Like not a bad settlement. Fantastic. The divorce is final. Okay, so he asked her to move out in August of 2018. The divorce becomes final in December of 2019. And that's the end of this trashy divorces story, right? Boom. No, not a chance. Okay. Because the thing you want to know is that Dana's a liar, (laughs) at least according to Blythe. Okay. So, (laughs) wait on it. This is amazing. The summer of 2020, so six months later, Mm -hmm. Blythe is back in court filing a new complaint. Because time Mm -hmm. has revealed some different information that she was not aware of when that divorce was signed off on in 2019. I mean, lockdown gives you a lot of time to start checking accounts and stuff. We have hired a forensic accountant, and uh, it turns out Dan may have allegedly misrepresented their assets. And Blythe was like, I was going for the quiet divorce because that's what you said you wanted. But hey, ho, as soon as those papers are signed, here comes Dan Brown with a children's book about animals, a musical (laughs) symphony CD release with his music to go with it. Finally, the dream. A television program based on Robert Langdon that they developed together. As well as a master class. He and Blythe developed the TV show? Correct. Yeah, dude. And Blythe is like, dude, you're a big stinky liar. You knew about all these projects that you held in your little corral. Mm-hmm. And I was your partner in all things. And maybe you suck. We may be paraphrasing here. Paraphrase. <laughs> So Blythe at this time, 2020, is 67 years old. I love her. I really know whose side I stand with in this one. Blythe says, this lawsuit is about standing up for myself and asserting my self-worth. I have continually tried to absorb the shocking truth withheld during our divorce that Dan had been leading a double life during our marriage, all the while coming home to me. I trusted this man for decades as my life's love. We worked so hard together, struggling to build something meaningful. I don't recognize the man Dan has become, and it is time to reveal his deceit and betrayal. Wasn't one of his books called Deception Point? Yes. Interesting. Hmm. Dan Brown, at this time 56 years old, will file a countersuit for libel and slander. He argues that his former wife sets out to, quote-unquote, publicly shame him and, quote-unquote, destroy his legacy. Did you read what Salman Rushdie wrote about you, dude? (laughs) Dan will say, any implication or claim that I lied or hid money is absolutely false. I am utterly shocked that she chose to do this. Okay. So what is this double life that Blythe speaks of? I was going to say, I feel like there's more to this story. Her lawsuit contends that Blythe and Dan formed a partnership in the literary world that was to last for nearly 30 years, taking them places that they could never have imagined. 
When it comes to the Da Vinci Code, Blythe says she developed the premise of the critical concepts, historical emphases, and complex plot twists. Her lawsuit will go on to say that Dan engaged in quote-unquote unlawful and egregious conduct that amounted to a quote-unquote proverbial life of lies during the last several years of her marriage. Now I'm building it up. Hold on. Oh, God. But her lawsuit will state that this was untrue. Dan had, for a number of years, secretly siphoned funds from their marital assets, at least in part to finance his activities with his mistress, including a young horse trainer who lived in Holland. What? How how does that work? Holy horses. Okay, Okay. Sorry. Hold your horses. This horse trainer, who is simply referred to as JP in court documents, is a Frisian horse specialist. Apparently, Frisian horses are known as the Fabio of horses. Hmm. They're, like, very glamorous. Okay. She's a talented dressage rider who Dan Brown brought from Holland to the United States in 2013. JP, though, a little bit of run of bad luck. She will need to have shoulder surgery. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, JP recuperates at the couple's home, which is apparently where the trouble begins Mm -hmm. in 2014, according to Blythe. Interesting. Here, Dan Brown will take mutual assets to buy gifts for the recovering mistress, including (laughs) a prize-winning horse named... Limited edition, limited edition, (laughs) worth $345,000, the Fabio of horses, a new car, a transport truck for two horses. Hmm. Also, Dan Brown is going to pay for renovations back on her place in Holland. Nice work if you can get it. This doesn't even cover the wire transfers made to the political official in Anguilla. I don't know what that means. Dan has another honey on the side at their tropical resort oh home my God. in okay. Anguilla. Okay. Okay. So, Bly's lawsuit contends that these purchases diminished the net worth of the couple considerably. Blythe will say that she found out that Dan had been stepping out with his personal trainer, a hairdresser, a woman on their Caribbean holiday home island, wow. and... The Dutch horse trainer sure. to whom he had given the $350,000 Fabio horse to. He is Exeter's man about town or wherever, Rye, New York or whatever. I don't know where they were living. Blythe confronts her husband hmm. where he allegedly tells her, his ex-wife, I've done a lot of bad things with a lot of people. That's his statement. <sighs> Okay, Dan Brown. Dan Brown will go on to admit having an affair with the hairdresser and tells his ex-wife that his relationship with the horse trainer has and will continue. Is he still seeing the hairdresser? They're like... I don't know. Do all of the service providers that he's sleeping with know about the other service providers? Anyway. Again, Dan Brown stunned by these false claims made by my wife. Bly's lawsuit says, quote, Dan stands to make millions from these projects, the ones he's hidden from her, Mm -hmm. which undoubtedly is why he hid them from Blythe. 
She agreed to a quiet divorce last year from her longtime husband. Only afterward did she learn that for years he had been deceiving her. Blythe just is asking that her ex-husband be accountable for his dishonesty. Good Lord, Dan Brown. He releases a statement. On the day that Blythe and I married, I never remotely thought that we would eventually grow so far apart. I am saddened that there is not enough goodwill from 21 years of marriage to temper her unfortunate actions. Wow. Does the hairdresser know about these statements? I just... So Blythe, after the divorce in 2020, goes back and sues Dan Brown. Dan Brown responds with a countersuit, saying that he has not concealed any assets. He has not done any of this from his ex-wife. And he appeals to the court to unseal the divorce documents. And then he'll accuse Blythe of spending more than $10 million on her horses, equine projects, and horse companions. I can't tell if that means other people who are into horses or horses that she has made her friends. <laughs> I'm not sure. But he will go on to acknowledge about the Holland Fabio horse trainer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and said that his marriage with Blythe had been in name only since the end of 2014. So he had checked out four years before he told her to get out. This is brutal. Blythe says her lawsuit is not an effort to get more money or revenge. This is not about money, she says. It is about Dan's lying and betrayal. Dan <laughs> says we were a wonderful pair for a long time. People evolved differently. We started living separate lives and had been for quite some time. It was time for it to be over for both of us. She agreed. So this has come as a total shock. Whatever. Summer 2020, Blythe files, Dan counterfiles, unlawful and egregious. Blythe going hard. Dan has lived a proverbial life of lies for the last six years. I mean, I can tell who the writer in the family is. Seeming to be the epitome of a world-famous novelist leading a simple life in his home state of New Hampshire, while in reality, he was something quite different. Dan has secretly removed substantial funds from his and Blythe's hard-earned marital assets to conduct sordid extramarital affairs with women one half his age and to pursue a clandestine life. How does it all settle down? Blythe's attorney, Harvey Wolkoff, says Blythe Brown and Dan Brown have reached an amicable resolution of their disagreements and will have no further comment. <laughs> they request that their desire for privacy and closure be respected. So this is December 2021. They reach a settlement. No details on the amount of that settlement were announced. Yeah, I'm sure there are big NDAs that have been applied on that. Yeah, The suit was dismissed, including any and all claims and counterclaims in the matter. So that is the trashy divorce that happened after the trashy divorce of Blythe and Dan Brown. She got into horses. He got into their trainers. <laughs> Quite literally. Yikes. So like the Da Vinci Code of the end of a marriage. My thoughts are that she should have had outside experts. Like just not, not just. Sure, but he lies. Hey, babe, let's just be done. And I'm going to give you half. And this is what we have. And you know our bank account. But once you're sitting around in COVID and have a little bit of time to explore those statements. Mm -hmm. So Blythe. 
trash cans, baby, I'm going high. We see this in trashy divorces. A woman literally devotes her life to a man, his dreams, his creative pursuits, his music, whatever, and gets jacked in the end. Yeah, he's like up in the attic with his Casios and you're doing dental hygienist stuff. Like, come on. So I'm giving a halo to Blythe Mm -hmm. for standing up for herself. And I'm giving 44 trash cans (laughs) to Dan Brown. The number of languages that the Da Vinci Code got translated (laughs) into. But really, everybody knows the trashy language of betrayal. It's all the same. Yep. That one is pretty universal, Dan. Yikes. I just went into the story thinking that it was going to be an easy peasy, quick way out. And I got a little bit more defensive of Blythe than I had anticipated. You've been a little, you've been a little hot around the collar for a couple days working on this one. Folks, that's trashy divorces for the week. Infidelity, you. Infidelity. (laughs) Whether you know about it at the time or not. Word of the day. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. For tuning into this episode, if you need more Trashy Divorces, where can the people find us, Stacey? Check us out at Patreon at patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces, or you can check out some stuff we've pulled from the paywall over there at bit.ly slash Trash Candy. Just plug that into your browser. It'll take you there. Got some fun stuff happening on Patreon. We're actually doing a few branching off episodes from Robert Evans Mm. from last week, which has been a lot of fun. We got dumpster dive and nightcap chat, salons as well. All the good stuff over there. We're going to be back on Wednesday with an all new trashy breakups for you. Thank you so, so much for tuning in today. Hope you have a fantastic week. And in the meantime, friends, keep your hands clean. Keep those hearts trashy. Keep your teeth in your mouth. (laughs) Your horses in the barn. Yeah. Your horse trainers away from your spouse. We'll see you Wednesday, friends. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.